Well, greetings. Welcome to The Dividing Line. It's uh, it's actually our normal time. We're actually, this is when we're supposed to be doing it, pretty much. And, uh, of course, it's not for you guys in the East Coast because your clocks changed and all the rest of that weird stuff. But anyways, we're here, and uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, but I want to start off with something a little funny. I... Uh, <coughs> um, uh, last uh, a week ago, yesterday, um, Callie and I were supposed to fly up with a dear friend from the church that I was speaking at back in St. Charles. We were going to fly up to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and visit with John and Corey Cooper. And my wife's always wanted to learn how to fly. To be perfectly honest with you, uh, she's very interested in flying and and uh, you know a little Cessna 172, and and she had been reading her flight manuals and and. And all this stuff, and we were really looking forward to it, and our, our pilot friend was really looking forward to it as well. Well, we, we head for the airport, and there are icing conditions. And you don't, you don't fly a little Cessna 172 um, in, with low ceilings and icing conditions. That's, that's not wise. So we had to, we had to call it off, and, um, and so I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going to drive up. And Kelly's like, I'm going with you. And uh, so we... Threw all our stuff in the car real fast at the hotel and uh, headed north. It was a five and a half hour drive, but I did one day. I did a fifteen and a half hour drive, so uh, that's probably illegal as far as if you if I was a trucker. Uh, I'm not sure what the max is per day, but fifteen and a half is just absurd. And it was, even though I only got tired in the afternoon. By the evening, it was just zombie. <laughs> I was fine. It's like, nah, whatever. Um, but anyways, we drew, drove up and uh, spent some time with uh, John and Corey, and Jen came over. So we had three out of the four uh, band members from Skillet, and, and we got the tour of the uh, La Casa de Cooper and um, all the cool stuff there, and just sat around and talked till till for me, anyways, being an older person, very late in the evening. Um, and then the next morning, and then uh, I had to I had to head head out, and uh, John actually uh, took uh, Kelly to the airport, and she she flew out from uh, Milwaukee. Anyway, so we were chatting about um, the, the dividing line today and some of the topics I was going to be addressing. And so I sent him some of the some of the articles and uh, tweets, basically that I'm going to be talking about today. And one of me said, "Man, that that, that just seems downright blasphemous." Uh, and you'll see which one it is later on. And I'm like, yeah, um, I, I would, I would agree. And he made some comment about it's going to be a woke Christmas. And so I said, I said to him, don't you dare send me an audio clip of you, you doing an Elvis impersonation of woke Christmas. Uh, I was thinking blue Christmas, and so you got a woke Christmas. Well, I don't know. About ten minutes later, uh, the, uh, the the message thing goes off on my phone, and. Um, uh, this is this is what arrived. Now, I also want you to please notice, I would be very derelict in my duties here if I did not point you to the hat uh, that that Brother Cooper is wearing, especially for the guys um, you know who are making these hats available. Uh, they probably want you to see that hat as well. It's prominently displayed. And the nice thing is I know exactly where John's standing in his house right now. <laughs> Not very far from where he uh, does some of his uh, Cooper stuff stuff. But, uh, okay, so, so this is what appeared on my, on my phone um, uh, just, uh, just this morning. You got it? All right, here we go. 
James isn't dreaming of a woe Christmas. So much heresy, so little time. <laughs> Where theologians tell lies and woke Christians bastardize the gospel we've held on for so long. <laughs> That's for you. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Uh, I think I think there's there's possibility of uh, of a skillet Christmas album someday, but it'll it'll have a twist, <laughs> a real twist. <laughs> yeah, send your cards and letters to uh, John Cooper. Actually, uh, yes. <laughs> well, he's right though. I mean, man, there is some weird stuff going on, and and that that was just. I think it was probably prompted by I sent all this stuff that we're going to be looking at, and he's like, "Man, because when you see it once once every couple hours, then it's not as bad as when you see it all just crammed together." But yeah, all right. Well, let's get to it. Thank you, John, for that great introduction. <laughs> to, I, I told you not to do that, but you did that anyways. Thank you very much. Um, let's start with. Um, um, I do, by the way, want to. I do want to do a review, and I may have to listen to it again before I do it. I do want to. I'm looking at the topics to be covered on the DL. I use something called Evernote, and uh, I, I shouldn't have said that because now they'll probably get rid of me for being politically incorrect or something. But um, and that kind of thing's coming. Believe you me, it's coming. You better believe it's coming. If 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 banks and financial institutions are able to drop you because they don't like what you say, uh, the the level of corporate totalitarianism. It, ooh, wow, it's going to be pretty wild. Anyway, uh, I do want to uh, do a review eventually of the Airman Sheffield debate that took place a few weeks ago. I did listen to all of it and found it humorous. I'm not sure that Bart Ehrman knew that Sheffield has produced all those cartoon things. They didn't discuss it, so I'm not sure if he had ever seen them. But we, it, it would be worth uh, doing a, a conversation review of. But first tweet. December 9th, so this was, uh, wow, this is six days ago, um, Carl Ellis Jr., who is a very well-known uh, professor uh, for Reformed Theological Seminary, Carl Ellis Jr. tweeted the following, many young black men are rejecting Christianity in today's urban areas. One primary reason is because Christianity has failed to address the core concerns of dignity, identity, and significance. This had 215 likes, uh, 60 shares, and 51 comments. Now, this is a professor at a Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, and... I, and of course he speaks to these issues very um, regularly, not being a follower of identity politics, I, I don't think that his um, ethnicity should be made an issue, but there you go. One primary reason why young black men in, are rejecting Christianity in today's urban areas is because Christianity has failed to address the core concerns of dignity, identity, and significance. 
Now, if what was being said is that the common form of Christianity, the common form of Christianity found in black churches in urban areas um, is a form of Christianity that does not address key elements of the Christian worldview, then I could understand this. Because if, in in any context, if you do not have a biblical view of man as the creature of God, if you do not have a creator God, if you do not have man made in the image of God, then um, man's dignity, and hence his responsibility before God, his identity as the creature of God, um, his significance as demonstrated by the Incarnation, um, those things would be missing. So, if that's what's being referred to, then that would be true, but it would be an indictment of an entire form of Christianity, or really a, a malformation of Christianity. My response, I, I tweeted back, There is only one way to address dignity, identity, and significance in any nation at any time. Made in the image of God, rebel sinner, condemned, able to be reconciled by the dignity, identity, and significance of another, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus. So, if the original tweet was talking about dignity, identity, and significance of the individual, and that it is a part of the Christian message to be building this up, then I would say this is a complete misrepresentation of at least what Reformed Christianity is about. Because what is any sinner's dignity? Now, if we're talking about Adam in an unfallen state, that's one thing, but That was a long time ago. What is any person's dignity today? Well, you could say that all people have the dignity of being created by God. You could say that. But that would also require you to say, and that all people are under the wrath of God because of their fallen Adam and their hatred of God's ways. And when you talk about identity today, that is a, a word fraught with new meanings that must be challenged from the Christian worldview. Unless you're redefining the Christian worldview, which is what is happening in so many of our schools, seminaries, everywhere today. Churches, we're going to be looking at a number of examples where in churches... In churches that were once considered evangelical, the woke movement has resulted in a complete redefinition of the language that we have used. And we have documented in this program over and over and over again that this is a worldview battle, this is a biblical battle. Some people say, stand up politics. This isn't politics, this is worldview. This is, this is identity is a Christian term. The, the, the Christian scriptures address 
what our, our identity is supposed to be. We are identified by our creator. That is a creation category. And since we have fallen, then we are either going to be identified as continuing rebel sinners against God under his wrath, or as reconciled believers with a new heart and a new nature in Christ. But our identity is only in him. Notice, I haven't had to even raise the issue of ethnicity because there is no Christian worldview category for it. When it comes to identity, we are all either one in Adam or one in Christ. Do we need to go back over Romans chapter 5 again? Do we need to once again remind ourselves that in central to the Pauline argument of soteriology itself, as he transitions from the discussion of justification into living that out, is that section that honestly a lot of people just find completely befuddling but shouldn't if they understand something of covenant theology, understand something about federal headship. Romans chapter 5, you're either in Adam and have only from him what he can give you, which is the solidarity of his posterity in death, or you are in Christ and he gives you eternal life. There's nothing about ethnicities, ethnicities in there. And if you try to insert identity concepts into Christianity, you are denying the fundamental teachings of Scripture in Romans chapter 5. Just be open about it. Just say, I reject Adam as a federal head. I reject that there is simply one race, one ethnicity. I reject all that. I want my skin color to have something to do, not only with my relationship to God, but I want it to divide the body as well. I want black spaces in the church. I want Asian spaces in the church. I want Hispanic spaces in the church. I want white spaces in the church. Whatever it is, just be open about what you're doing. Because you don't believe Romans chapter 5. You won't live it out. All right? So, dignity, identity, significance, these are all Christian worldview terms. And when we play this, oh, don't talk about this stuff game, we are fundamentally abandoning the Christian worldview and saying, Christian worldview stuff only has to do with what goes on between here and here. It has nothing to do with the application in life. It has nothing to do with how we even do church. It just has to do with this spiritual stuff, I guess. I don't know. Anyway. But the reality is, that any meaningful Christian proclamation, whether it's in urban areas, whether it's among black men, young black men, or young Hispanic men, or older Asian men, or whatever, if it is a true Christian proclamation, will address dignity, identity, and significance. But it'll do so, first and foremost, in the person of Jesus Christ. And it'll say, you can have dignity as a redeemed person, as a redeemed young black man. You can have identity, not in a cultural concept, not because of who your ancestors were, but you can have identity in Christ. Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2. These are biblical teachings. And no matter how hard the other side tries, they can't get rid of what these biblical teachings are.
Haven't even made the attempt, to be honest with you. You want significance? Be in, be Have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you and be dwelt, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. There is significance. There is significance. That's, that's what we're facing. That's what we're facing. That's, that's vitally important. You want to see how deeply this has gotten into things? This was actually... I had this on the screen the last program. So this is I had this up Friday. But uh, Jackie Hill Perry posted a video. I'm not going to drag it over here, and I'll, you can you can listen to it. But Jackie Hill Perry posted a video, and of course she's quoting from Robin DiAngelo's uh, book White Fragility, which j- just simply simply on the level of logic is so far outside the Christian worldview because there, when, when, you, when you present arguments where there is no possible counter, not because of the overwhelming ev- part of the evidence, evidence is irrelevant. When you present arguments and you frame the argument in such a way that you say person X is guilty, and if person X says they are not guilty, that's further evidence of them being guilty. Okay, this is not rational thought. Okay, if, if you can't recognize the Kafka-esque traps in the, the, the theory of white fragility, uh, there, there's, there's no helping you. Uh, you're, you there's, there's just nothing there. Um, but they, she posted a, a video with her husband, and... Uh, let me just read it to you. That, that's good. And also, and also, too, we have to understand that white guilt is not repentance. Let me just stop right now. White guilt. Again, we're now addressing a cultural concept, not a biblical concept. There's no such thing as ethnic guilt, uh, skin tone guilt in the Bible. There just isn't. You can try to you can try to come up with some connection to well you know the people of Israel you know the people of Israel were a covenant people with God who were to bring about the Messiah you've got Deuteron- Deuteronomy twenty eight and twenty nine don't try to stretch that out to ethnicities or you are twisting Scripture you are simply twisting Scripture and you know you're doing it you know you're doing it. you never use that kind of interpretation ten years ago fifteen years ago twenty years ago you'd never use it in regards to justification or the resurrection of the Trinity you know that all of you who are doing it just stop it just be or or just be honest and say I don't want to be consistent this is the new thing this is where we're going if you want to do that great so we have to understand that white guilt is not repentance. Like white guilt, feeling sorry, white guilt will make you do exactly what you have to do to get rid of your guilt. This is, is this in the church? I, I, thought, I thought all the writings that were against me were nailed to the cross of Christ. I, but you see, not in the woke church. Not in the woke church. The woke church has that over there someplace, but there's this new area of guilt and sin, and the cross has nothing to do with it. You don't get to get rid of it. It is who you are because it is this poisonous insertion of a foreign concept from critical theory and identity politics into the church. 
and you want mutation? You want to see what happens when you when you insert some type of radioactive or genetically altered stuff into the bloodstream of the church? We're going to be talking about vaccines later on. Um, there you go. Here, here it is. So it will say, let me do what I can so I won't feel guilty. So my conscience is clear, but yet that still doesn't cause you to walk in love with your black brothers and sisters. Hmm. What does it mean to walk in love with your black brothers and sisters? That's going to be defined here. What love does, what love says, I will step out of my comfort zone. I will step out of my own privilege. Ah, here we go. So now we're bringing in concepts of privilege, right? That's what humility does. Jesus stepped out of his own privilege. Now, at this point, you just, I hope you're sitting back going, no, he's not going to go there, is he? Yep. He did not count his rights regarding a thing to be grasped, but was able to let them go. But what was able to let them go to serve people. That's the car. He's talking about the Carmen Christie. He's talking about the Carmen Christie. And we have addressed Philippians chapter 2 so many different times on this program. And it is certainly one of the most incredible, awesome Christological passages in all of Scripture. And what Philippians chapter 2 is, it does, it is a sermon illustration. You, you can go back, you can go back and you can find sermons where I've addressed Philippians chapter 2 for over 20 years and I've made the strong argument that what this is, is this is the recipe for harmony in the local church. But what is the humility? It is having, not privileges, but rights, and laying them aside in the service of all others. I cannot think of a worse perversity than to try to take that beautiful passage, which is, if, if it were lived out in our churches, would bring peace amongst everyone. Laying your rights aside to serve others. That's what humility is. But I can't think of a greater perversity than to racialize that. To make that ethnic. Paul gives zero indication of that. You know why? Because Paul had already taught his churches. That's the past. It's gone. You don't bring it in here. We go to one Lord's Supper, one table. Leave that stuff out of here. It becomes poison when you bring it in. And that's exactly what's happening. Jesus stepped out of his own privilege. He did not count his rights regarding a thing to be grasped, but was able to let them go but was able to let them go to serve people. And that's what true Christ-like love and humility says. It says, I will let go of my own privilege. Let me just stop saying, Does do these folks have privilege? I think they're doing a whole lot better than most of us are. Do they have privilege to let go of? Do they have privilege over other ethnicities in other contexts? Does that ever come up? I won't hold my white privilege a thing to be grasped. Oh, ah. Oh. I'm willing to let them go. When he said that, Jackie started speaking in tongues. I'm willing to let them go for my black brothers and sisters in Christ. If you cannot do that, then you are you you you're then you're did not walking in love, period. So now what you're being told to walk in love, you have to buy this mutation 
where you've you've brought this whole concept that's utterly foreign into texts like holy places like Philippians chapter 2 and mutated them into something else. Language. I mean, this is biblical language. Just being absolutely mutated into who knows what. Into who knows what. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Just heard Rich say there's no fear of God before their eyes. Um, It's true. It's true. Now, let me illustrate this some more. There is, uh, I saw, I don't know, you know, sometimes you see things on Twitter because the people you're following engage in a dialogue with somebody, and, and so you see stuff you never would have seen otherwise. Well, there's a uh, Twitter handle, Inspiring Chris One, which is Inspiring Christianity. And this individual was making a made a number of assertions from a what would be technically called a progressive perspective very much on the left and i attempted to engage this person um by pointing out that jesus specifically um, and this was about Genesis 1 and 2 and had nothing to do with creation and things like that. And I mean, that's foundational. So I, I went for something that was foundational to what was being said. And I was pressing this person. And, for example, I said, except Jesus said, and then I, I quote from um, Matthew chapter 19 in the Greek. I said, upon what exegetical ground... Do you insert a distinction between Jesus' op arches from the beginning? So what I quoted was, uh, he created them from the beginning, male and female. He made the male and female. The creator did this. And I said, uh, upon what exegetical ground do you insert a distinction between Jesus' op arches and Moses' NRK at Genesis 1-1, since Jesus then quotes directly from Genesis 1 and 2. So this is just, again, basic exegesis. Genesis 1 says, NRK, in the beginning, in the, in the Greek Septuagint, and Bereshith bara, and so when Jesus says, op arches, from the beginning, he made them, the creator created them, male and female, he's, and then quotes from Genesis 1 and 2, then clearly the same beginning is in, is in view, and therefore, there is not only on Jesus's part a recognition of the creation, but that there is an element of the creation that is fundamental that must be understood, and that's the goodness of male and female, that it has a purpose. I think so many people in the church today are so much more disciples of Darwin than Jesus. Whether they know it or not, they may not even realize it, but they have been so deeply impacted by Darwinian naturalism that they just simply filter out all the stuff where, like this, where it's so obvious that Jesus is teaching this. Now, the, the responses were amazing. So many of these quote-unquote progressive Christians who just think it's laughable 
absolutely laughable that you would think that there is anything, anything at all relevant in the teachings of Jesus regarding anything in the modern world at all. Uh, Jesus was just accommodating himself. I challenge a number of these people. Uh, Jesus was just accommodating himself. Uh, he may have believed that, maybe he didn't. We don't know. It doesn't matter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When, when you find people who claim to be followers of Jesus, who have that attitude toward Jesus' teachings, then you, you know that you're, you're talking to somebody who really doesn't believe Jesus rose from the dead <laughs> um, and is not going to be the, the, the coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's pretty obvious. comes very sadly plain. In that, in that situation. So, for example, there's a guy named Benjamin Allen uh, who responded uh, to this inspiring Christianity fellow, and he said, Sadly, Dr. Oakley, 1689, that's me, is beholden to tradition and fundamentalism rather than scripture and context. So, I was giving the actual scripture and the actual context, and the other guy is just skipping all of that. But I'm the one that allegedly that is beholden to tradition and fundamentalism rather than scripture and context. Reading comments on Twitter can be extremely depressing. It really can be. But it also reminds you, as I have to remind this audience frequently and friends frequently, if you're in a good church, then that means you are generally having conversation about these things with fellow believers who likewise have a solid Christian worldview and consistency and things like that, right? And so you're generally, outside of social media, you're not having those conversations with with other people. What you always have to remember is that if you believe, if you believe that the Scripture is God's... If you, if you believe about the Bible, find my beautiful post-tenebrous locks. I'm going to grab my brown one. This one. It's, oh, man, it's... See, that says Sola Scriptura right in the front. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? With a Cairo and... Mm, mm, mm. Oh, look at the solas along the... Thank you, Jeffrey. Oh, they're just so soft. Anyways, what was I doing? What were we saying? Moses was in the bulrushes. No. If you believe that this is God speaking, as Jesus did, so if you believe Jesus' view on this, all right, you're in the minority. You're in the small minority, less than 10% minority of people who call themselves Christians. You have to keep that in mind. Because we tend... Because our conversation in good, solid churches is with brothers and sisters, we tend to get the idea, well, that's what everybody believes. But you have to keep in mind, we're in the small minority. That's why I've never, ever liked the majoritarian-style argumentation of a lot of evidentialists. Well, the majority of scholars say, because I know we're in the minority on almost everything. Almost everything. There's that, you know, Romans chapter 1, suppressing the knowledge of God, that's what the vast majority of people do. If you're not suppressing the knowledge of God, it's because God, by grace, has stopped you from doing so. Keep in mind, you will experience significantly less frustration in your life if you recognize that you are in the minority. 
and that it's a good place to be. Okay, speaking of, um, I'm not even sure how to tie these together, but I was, um, um, okay, well, yesterday, last evening, uh, Herschel York, uh, Dean of Theology at Southern, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, uh, posted a tweet that reads as follows, nice and short anyways. Uh, Moses had to deal with the anti-brassers who refused to look at the brazen serpent in the wilderness. And I'm, I'm sitting here going, no, really? What? The, Moses had to deal with the anti-brassers who refused to look at the brazen serpent in the wilderness. And this is about the new COVID vaccine. And so this is, I guess, you know, the anti-vaxxers, you know, the anti-vax movement and things like that. So Moses had to deal with the anti-brassers who refused to look at the brazen serpent in the wilderness. My response was fairly straightforward. Not only is this an incredibly absurd use of a vitally important element of the biblical narrative— John chapter 3, Jesus' application in regards to the serpent in the wilderness uh, as a picture of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. But it is wildly inappropriate to apply it to the most unique, rushed, novel vaccine ever forced in the bloodstreams of a billion people. Um, it seems that Big Eva has flown onto the scene. I don't – the the fact that it has happened so rapidly, and maybe it's just because, okay, now the vaccine's ready, um, and so that's that's how it's going to happen. I, I don't I don't know. Um, maybe that's what makes it seem like it's been fast and quick and, and things like that. I don't know. But it just seems to me like – very, 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 very quickly, there has been this outpouring of support for taking this novel, genetically-based, absolutely unique vaccine. And there is an example of it um, from that perspective. Now, yesterday, Dr. Albert Moeller presented seven points for consideration in regards to why he will take the vaccine as soon as it is available from a Christian worldview. And I'd like to respond to them in light of the the fact that this is a completely unique situation. Let me just, without going into a lot of details, just remind us that the amount of wealth that will be flowing into the pharmaceutical arena as a result of what has taken place, where's, where's all the money going? It's leaving the middle class, okay? The money is leaving the middle class. It's going someplace. It's going into major corporations, Walmart, Target, 
Amazon making record amounts of money, record amounts of money. It's also going to the pharma companies, and you need to remember, these pharma companies, to my understanding, have been completely and thoroughly insulated as part of this warp speed uh, project from any future legal action as to any negative results from these vaccines. There will be no, you're not going to hear the, I saw a, a meme just a few moments ago before the program started. Ten years from now, you're going to be sitting at home and you're going to hear, if you're a loved one, took the COVID-19 vaccine, call, da, da, da. That's not going to happen. There's going to be no billion dollars set aside, anything like that. Nope, nope. Um, they, have, there is, they have no liability whatsoever. So let's just, can we, can we just step back a second and put a few things on the table before I look at these points for consideration? This is a unique situation for multiple reasons. What's most frightening to me is that this is a man-made, media-driven panic. There was a study that came out um, just a few weeks ago that was immediately pulled from the site that posted it. It's only available on Archive now. That dove into the numbers and basically said there really hasn't been excess mortality and dove deeply into the numbers to say it looks like because other forms of mortality have lessened that there has been an inappropriate classification of COVID deaths. Now, we all know that that's been happening. The, the, public, the, the, the public representatives came out and said, if you die and you have a positive COVID test, it's a COVID death. A few days ago, and in fact, I have a clip here. Unfortunately, Rich left, so I can't play it. Um, but um, I, have a, I have a clip that I'll get to once Rich returns um, to, the, uh, to the control room, um, where Anthony Fauci, yes, the Anthony Fauci, uh, this past summer admitted in talking with fellow with with virologists that the PCR testing that we're we're doing right now is subject to wild false positives wild number of false positives he admitted it he talked about it and so you have the deaths any anybody honestly you can have a person in hospice on pain meds in their last week of life, and if they get coronavirus, that's what killed them. They wouldn't have lived another five days, but it doesn't matter. There's a positive PCR test for COVID. That's a COVID death. That's created a massively large number of deaths, which the media, and we don't have a free press in America any longer, the media as a group has used to create a massive sense of panic. Panic amongst the people. That's what's going on. And so the mindset is we have a horrible thing going on. People are dying in the streets. We can't, we've got to have refrigerator trucks. The CCUs are full, even though that's a... That's a 
complete fraud as well. It was from the start. I worked in a hospital. The CCU was almost always full. And that wasn't during any any pandemic. They want it that way. That's how they survive. They plan things so as to have a certain amount of occupation. People don't understand these things. We have had a numbers game run on us about CCU beds. We've had a numbers game run on us about mortality rates and numbers. Massive, massive stuff. Oh, hey, welcome back. Nice to have you back here. How you doing? Um, People are walking around. Okay. All right. So, so our cars are okay and stuff? Cars are okay. Okay. All right. Your, your glasses are dark, so you were out in the sun. Yeah, okay. Well, I was going to play something, so I was telling people that, that you, were, you were gone. And, and you're, uh, yeah, so let me, let me play this for you. I've already introduced it to you. Listen to what Anthony Fauci says in this conversation this week in virology. Now, look, folks. This Week in Virology is not on CNN. It's not on MSNBC. And they have nobody on their, in, in their staff that have anything, any idea what any of this stuff is talking about. But listen to this clip. Um, listen, listen to what's said here. Right. Again, a good question. And what is now sort of uh, evolving into a bit of a standard that if you get a cycle threshold of 35 or more, that the chances of it being replication competent are minuscule. Mm. So that if somebody, and you know, we do, we have patients, and it's very frustrating for the patients as well as for the physicians. Somebody comes in and they repeat their PCR, and it's like 37 cycle threshold. But you never, you almost never can culture virus from a 37 threshold cycle. Okay, now, I understand why that did not go viral <laughs> okay i even i even tweeted if if i told you that anthony fauci said that anything over 35 cycles in a pcr test is worthless how many of you would have any idea what i was talking about and most people just honestly wrote back and said i don't I'm, i don't have any i said without googling it they're like i don't know i had a couple of doctors go yeah i i do uh, it's significant and but i'm a doctor so that's that's why i know the pcr the, the 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 way that they are seeking to detect the signatures of these of this virus is by causing those little fragments uh, that are identifiable in the shell of the virus to replicate themselves, and so you go through these these cycles where where it it, it doubles it and doubles it and doubles it and doubles it, and it's it so you get to thirty five. And what he's saying is once you get past that level, you can't have any confidence at all. He said minuscule. I thought that was interesting. You can have no confidence that once it finally comes up, says, ah, there it is, that that actually means anything because you have magnified it, you've multiplied it so massively that it could be anything. I remember when my wife uh, took, I think, at least two, maybe three tests when she was still working. Always came back negative, but they always sent stuff back with her that said, 
Even if it comes back positive, that doesn't mean that you have COVID-19. You might have had a cold recently or all sorts of other things like that. Why? Because that's how PCR tests work. So he's saying past 35 and beyond, worthless. What's the standard in the, in the United States right now? 40. 40 cycles. That's why we're getting this. We don't have, we have right now a test-demic, not a pandemic. Because not only do you have the, piece, the, the, the problem with the PCR, but we are also testing, you ready for this? 670 times more than we have at this point in time in any year past, for example, for flu. If, we, if you went back to 2017 to 2018, took the numbers of positives then, and then multiply it by 670... We had a worldwide pandemic in 2017, 2018, and you didn't even know about it, did you? No, nobody did, because it's playing with numbers. All the death numbers, no one knows how many people die in the United States every single year, so you've got no context to put it in. So you can play with PCR, you can play with this stuff, and we have been gamed and gamed royally. So this has created... A massive panic, even amongst, I, I know scholars, I've got a scholar in, in Twitter that follows me, and in the field he's in, he's great, but man, he's bought all this stuff. He's bought all of this stuff. It's just, oh, the, there's people dying all over the place. It's like, you know, if you applied your standards of scholarship to this area, you wouldn't be believing this stuff, but there you go. So there's the context, and that is why we have what's happening now. Think about it. We have hundreds of millions, because between Moderna and the other one, I think that's, I think that's over 100 million right there. And that's just in the United States. They're already doing it in, in Britain and Russia and places like that. Hundreds of millions of these vaccines. And most of us are sitting there. I was sitting here until just recently thinking... This is similar to how we do flu shots and things like that. Until I started doing a little more reading in the articles that don't get viral because they're so complicated. And that's when I discovered this is the first time we've ever done this. Now, we've used this technology in extreme situations of like cancer and stuff like that. But for a a virus, we've not done this. We are using... Our CRISPR technology, the the technology that's developed really over the past 15 years, to play with genetics. And we've created an mRNA strand, a messenger RNA strand. Now, if you know anything about genetics, you're going, what do you know about genetics? I was probably fell in in, in biology in college. I I raised 35,000 Drosophila melanogaster fruit flies my senior year studying a certain locus on a particular gene. I know a little something about it. It's dated knowledge, but I know something about it. And if you know anything about genetics, you know that our chromosomes are made up of DNA. We've mapped the human genome now. DNA is that double-stranded nucleotide. And... RNA is a single strand. And so RNA is very much involved in the transcription of DNA where you've got certain enzymes that unzip the DNA and then read it and create a a single strand that comes out from that and then it zips it back up. It's, It's just, 
talk about intelligent design. It is astonishing. I mean, the the ability of the creator to make these things is just <laughs> so far beyond anything we even have now. We've just now, after all this time, come up with the ability to start playing with his stuff, which is frightening. In a Christian worldview, it would be great. Without a Christian worldview, it is the stuff of the worst nightmares of the worst dystopian films and books you'll ever see. It is I Am Legend all over again. So anyway, so we've come up with this technology where we have made an RNA strand. That's what's in the vaccine. And the RNA strand goes into cells in your body and instructs those cells, whatever else they're doing, to start producing antibodies to the coronavirus. So you're hijacking the cells of your body and using genetic information to cause them to produce antibodies for the coronavirus. Now, this has never been done before. Any other vaccine, you'd need to have one, three, and five-year safety studies. There are no one-year, three-year, and five-year safety studies here. Can't be. Operation Warp Speed. Can you imagine any situation any situation that could warrant immediate introduction of hundreds of millions of vaccines into a population with less than four months of human studies. I can't think of one. And if you had not produced the panic that has taken over the minds of it looks like at least 40%, if not 70% of the human population. This would never be happening. We'd never allow it. We'd never allow it. It wouldn't be done. But we're doing it. But we're doing it. And I simply say to anyone, do you think maybe there might be grounds for being at least somewhat hesitant here? That there might be something else going on here that would explain this sudden overthrow? I mean, how many people have I... I I was listening to doctors while I was driving, had a lot of hours of driving uh, last week. These doctors on Fox News. Oh, it's perfectly safe. Oh, we've just had no problems at all. It's wonderful. The number of tests they have done in comparison to the number of doses they're putting out is tiny. No long-term studies at all. Now, I hope and pray that these vaccines will not cause long-term damage. So one of the greatest dangers is autoimmune. Autoimmune problems. There are people who have raised, they said, how do you know that cells will not incorporate this RNA because cells have the capacity of taking an RNA strand and turning it into a DNA strand and storing it in the cell, making it a part of the genome. They have the the ability to do that. The scary thing is, you know what I hear back? Our models do not predict this. Our models do not predict this. I hope that's true. I hope that's true. 
But every model so far about this virus has been one big fat lie. And so when, I, when someone says, it's your Christian duty, I look them in the eye and go, and what's the five-year safety study on this? Not just for me, but for my children and my grandchildren? What's the five-year safety? Well, we don't have any of that. But we assure you it's safe. They did that in 1976, too. Go back. Look at the people who could not walk the rest of their lives because of the flu vaccine in 1976. And that wasn't a genetic thing. That wasn't nearly as scary as this. And yet, when if you take the time to actually read up, you're, you're called a conspiracy theorist. And the fact is... There is suppression of information on this subject by big tech. I mean, after the live showing this program, it may never be seen again for all I know. Because I'm just simply logically saying, hey, there are reasons to go, I I, I don't really want to insert man-manipulated genetic material into my body. Is that really difficult to understand? I hope it works. And if this was Ebola that had become aerialized and has a 75% kill ratio, okay, it's worth the risk. But the WHO's own serum study said that for people under age 70, the survival rate for coronavirus is 99.95%. You're not allowed to talk about that. Hmm. I think there should be open discussion of all this. Don't you think? The very fact there isn't makes me go, huh, a lot of strange coincidences here. A lot of strange coincidences. So, um, the seven points consideration for Dr. Muller, real quick. Uh, First, Christians do not believe in medical non-interventionism. I agree a thousand percent. Don't have any problem with that at all. Uh, That's... That's it. Secondly, we must consider the derivation of the vaccine itself. So in other words, he had some very interesting discussion here about HEK-293 um, from a aborted uh, uh, fetus in the Netherlands in the 1960s. Um, a number of the people that were working on this vaccine basically said that's not relevant because we're just simply, this is, we're just doing the uh, RNA marker. So I'll be honest with you, I don't know how the HEK-293 line was relevant outside of maybe testing. I don't know how it would have been relevant in the development with... Uh, did that provide the, the, the mRNA that was then used in CRISPR? I don't know. I don't know. But there was a lengthy discussion there about uh, that issue and a few other things that go along with it. I won't go into right now, though it is well worth going into that particular discussion. Uh, the fourth issue is whether or not a medical treatment is made mandatory by governing authority, and I can guarantee you this will be. I, I just In Canada, they've just extended the mask mandate till December of next year. This is living by lies. This is, this is living by lies. So what they're going to do is, is, is what's going to happen, what's happening in Canada is you either get vaccinated or you live the rest of your life in a mask. And even they have to realize that the masks are a joke. And so eventually it's, we're going to force you or we're going to lock you up 
and take away your property. That, that, that's already happening in Canada. Uh, so the mandatory element of it, you, you bet. Uh, that's, that's, gonna, that's coming. Fifth principle for Christians thinking about vaccines deals with the common good, the issue of love of neighbor. Now, this is the big thing. In fact, the U.S. bishops... U.S. bishops, this is Breitbart, uh, say Catholics have moral responsibility to be vaccinated against coronavirus. So the Catholics are on board. Roman Catholics are on board. And they are saying that, and this is, the, this is why you have to wear masks. This is why you have to shut down your business. This is why you have to do all this stuff. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Um, this, so, so, to love your neighbor, you must... Take an unknown risk with your life and the life of your children and your grandchildren. That's, that's required of you to love your neighbor. For something that has a 0.05% mortality rate for people under the age of 70. I'm sorry, I don't buy that one. That's, that's not loving your neighbor. That's, that's not loving your neighbor at all. Um, common good argument. Uh, sixth principle pertains to the integrity of the family and the authority of parents. Uh, public schools will just absolutely demand it. No question. Public schools will absolutely uh, demand uh, this. The seventh and final moral principle has to do with access and priority, which is perhaps the easiest the seven to understand. Those who are at greater risk or serving the front lines of this pandemic ought to be the first in line to receive the vaccine, assuming it's safe. And again, I hope to God that it is. What if it isn't? What if there is a five-year unforeseen autoimmune disaster? Who are we going to lose? The people that take care of us. I'm just left going, no, thank you. Um, no, thank you. Uh, anybody who is so fearful of a 0.05% mortality rate, um, feel free to take that risk. And the fact of the matter is, if hundreds of millions of people do that, that logically creates what's called herd immunity. And so we should all get to take our masks off. It won't happen. They won't let it happen. They have submission. They're going to keep pushing submission. Keep pushing submission. The scary thing to me is, if come spring, you start hearing about COVID-21, then you will know. You will know beyond all certainty that this has been, we're just following, we're following the, following the script, following the script all the way along, following the script all the way along. That's, that's what's going on. So, um, my, my response to Dr. York is Dr. York, thank you for all that you've done. But I, I really feel that tweet was, um, not only tasteless in its, utilization of John 3, but it simply ignores the completely unique, completely unique situation that we are facing here and the realities that have brought us to the position we're in. You just, just need to, just need to realize that. Um, there is a, um, there was a tweet from a fellow. 
woke theology just destroys absolutely everything. Carlos Rodriguez, um, let's see, this is 12-6. Carlos Rodriguez, if you want to see where this is heading. Now, now, there's a positive side to this, I'll be honest with you. Churches led by people spouting this kind of stuff die. They just, they die. They, they, they're, they're not attractive. Um, they, 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 they can't maintain it for very long. Carlos A. Rodriguez says, Christmas is about believing what a woman said about her sex life. Christmas is about a family finding safety as refugees. Christmas is about a child in need receiving support from the wealthy. <laughs> Let's just think about that one for a second. Those are the wise men. <laughs> wow. When you can <laughs> when you can connect the wise men observing the heavens and seeing his star, whatever that all that meant. <laughs> when you can connect that to a child in need receiving support from the wealthy. Let's make it about socialism. Yeah, that's great. Christmas is about God identifying with the marginalized, not the powerful. This is, um, this is what woke theology uh, does to the Bible. And, and of course, anyone who then sits down and, and actually goes, Why? Well, I want to I see how that works. And so you turn to uh, Luke and you start reading and... You're reading through, and and you're you're like, um, uh, when am I going to get to all the the woke stuff? I'm I'm uh, I'm not getting. Uh, what's this John the Baptist? Ooh, this John the Baptist guy doesn't sound woke at all. He's talking about the wrath of God and and all this, stuff. and it's it's everybody's coming to repentance, and it's not. There's nothing about ethnicity here, and wow, he's bringing the law of God to bear, and that law of God includes stuff about homosexuality and stuff like that. Ew, I'm not even sure. Yeah. They're not going to find any of that stuff in there. And that's, that's what woke theology does. It's, uh, it's ugly stuff. Hey, did you see Jory Micah is still out there? Uh, if you go to Jory Micah's uh, um, page on Twitter, you know, she calls herself a, uh, a minister. In fact, I guess she's got a book coming out on her being a minister and all this kind of stuff. Um, I, remember, I remember when Summer first went went after Jory Micah early on in the Sheologians uh, thing. And um, boy, has uh, has that warning been proven out over and over again over the past few years. Um, here's what Jory Micah says. You cannot love LGBTQ people without affirming them. Honestly, it's your unaffirming theology or LGBTQ people. You can't have both. And there is no middle or third way. Well, there you go. Um, once, once you see these folks, and we've all watched it, these, these people used to be in, at least at the periphery of evangelicalism, and then you start seeing a little thing here, a little thing there. It's almost it always starts with Scripture, <clears throat> the authority of Scripture, consistency of Scripture the sufficiency of Scripture to address modern issues. And you start seeing that leftward trajectory. And 
the results are inevitable. Highly predictable, but inevitable. Uh, so you are not loving LGBTQ people unless you affirm them in their lifestyle. You cannot question it. There can be no categories. Doesn't matter what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 19. Doesn't matter what Moses' law said. Doesn't matter what Romans 1 says. Doesn't matter how Paul functioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All of that does not matter. Who cares if when Paul goes through the Ten Commandments in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that he includes homosexuality as a violation of God's moral law from the Ten Commandments? Who cares? You must affirm these things. And so you see the arc of apostasy. It's the arc of apostasy. And these folks are out there, and they're doing their thing. And here's, here's, here's what's going to happen. You want... Remember what happened two weeks ago? Pastor in Germany dares to post a family seminar where he criticizes public displays of nudity and sexual debauchery on the streets of Germany. Uh, While telling people to live peaceful and quiet lives and to be faithful to their husbands and wives and take care of their families. Oh, that's a terrible thing to do. That's just, ah. Well, he's found guilty of sedition against the German state. And, of course, the state church turns against him and kicks him out. So what's going to happen in the United States is these same people who, uh, I mean, have, have, you seen, have you seen the lament going, I guess I'll go ahead and I'll address that in a second. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. I didn't save one of the tweets, but I, I'll get to that in, in just a moment. Um, what's going to happen with the Biden administration which won't be a long administration. It'll become the Harris administration very, very quickly. I saw a video of Joe Biden this morning. Oh Did you see that? The, 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 the man is going to keel over and die. Uh, that's just all there is to it. Um, uh, oldest man ever uh, to be dominioned. <laughs> um, and uh, that, that's what we should call it. He has, he has, taken, he has been taken by dominion. <laughs> he didn't take dominion. He's been taken by dominion to the White House. Um, but... What you're going to have is either the executive order example of the Equality Act, or if Dominion manages to do what Dominion is designed to do in Georgia, um, and they get those two Senate seats, then you will have the Equality Act. Because the only thing standing in the way of every church in the United States being able to be shut down unless you hire homosexuals, hire transgenders, affirm these things, is what happens in Georgia. Well, for two years. <laughs> um, that, that's the only thing standing in the way. Honestly. Because uh, Harris, Biden and Harris, said beforehand, if they, they take the Senate, the Equality Act will be the first priority. Equality Act will be rammed through Congress. They, they own the House. They'll own the Senate. And the, you'll be stuck with the Equality Act. And the Equality Act is what Europe already has. Enforcing this stuff down your throat, your children's throat, and your grandchildren's throat. And so to every one of you big Eva folks who are telling everybody that it's okay, that's all right, we can, Joe Biden, good man, better than Donald Trump. 
You have nowhere to hide. You voted for this. You, you, there's no complaints from you when your church gets shut down, okay? None. Zero. We tried to tell you, reasoned with you, provided... Nope. No listening. No listening. There you go. So, what's going to happen is when these things go to court, they're going to bring the jury micas in to testify that you don't have a Christian basis. And you won't be allowed to cross-examine them. They're going to bring these apostates in to testify that, that the real Christian view is an affirming perspective. And, and the reality is, what they're saying is, you cannot love them without affirming them. You better be careful because, sadly, starting 40 years ago, our legal system became infected with something called hate crimes laws, where you try to read people's minds. And the next thing for us, you proclaim what Jesus proclaimed, you're guilty of hate. There you go. There you go. There you go. So thank you, uh, Jory Micah. So um, what was that? I was... Oh, real quickly. Let me... Let me... The... Um, there are lots of folks, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, a new phrase has invaded our conversation, Christian nationalism. I had never heard of it before. Um, but there are people who say, oh, we've been talking about this forever, but not in this context. Um, let me say first that I am seeing things on the fringes of the right that are scary. The stuff that happened last uh, last week in Washington was scary. There were some really weird things going on there. Weird stuff being said, weird theology. You're you're getting um what seems to be happening is you're you're getting the extremes getting crammed together into one test tube and it's creating a really interesting mixture of stuff. So you've got ultra-conservative Roman Catholics, you know, anointing statues and stuff. At the same time, you've got charismatics prophesying that Donald Trump's going to be president for another four years. And they're all doing it standing next to each other. And it's, yeah, it's pretty weird. So if that's quote-unquote Christian nationalism, yeah, it's pretty weird. But that's not what Christian nationalism is. That's not how it's being used. If you dare to say that it is better for a nation to follow after Christian principles than anti-Christian principles, you're being labeled a Christian nationalist. Because what you need to understand is these people are now anti-Christian globalists. And that's who's coming into power, are anti-Christian globalists. From Biden on down, Kamala Harris, all of them are anti-Christian globalists. And so... If you thought the Constitution would protect you, you got to understand, once they submit us to all these external treaties and stuff, the Constitution becomes irrelevant. It doesn't matter anymore. Um, and the whole idea, eventually, in the Great Reset, is that people in Brussels or someplace else, if that's where they end up settling, they've already got the buildings there, why not? 
thousands of miles away will get to determine everything you do in life. No, no responsibility locally. Uh, how your children are educated, and you will not be able to educate them at home. You will not be allowed to educate them at home. I mean, we're really getting to the point where, remember, during the lockdowns, parents weren't allowed in the rooms while the, while the, the teachers were talking to the students, remember? That happened in many places. Can you imagine that kind of global authority? Wow. Um, and people voted for it. I, I'm just like, I'm just, <laughs> that's deception right there. Um, that kind of stuff, uh, scary. I get it. I get it. But uh, there are people saying what Trump needs to do is Trump needs to um, declare martial law and call for a new election. Here, there's, there's one, and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing people saying this all the time, and I, I just look at them and I go, excuse me, he would lose that election by a landslide. And that would be the, that would be the end. That's it. It's all over. He would lose by a landslide. But there are people saying, and there are people pushing him to do exactly that. And I'm like, why do you think he'd win? Well, everybody would vote for him last time. No. No. Um, do I think there is voter fraud? Massive voter fraud. Do I think it's been stolen? Yeah, I do. I do. But as I said on Twitter, the constitutional system was set up with the assumption that the citizens of the country would seek to maintain it, not destroy it. And once we're in a situation where there are a sufficient number of people in the country seeking to subvert it, it's done. You pessimist! Sorry, I'm just a realist. I'm, I'm looking at the Constitution. <laughs> I'm, I've, I've read the framers, and they assumed that the people in the country would not be seeking to destroy the nation. And they are seeking to destroy the nation from inside. This was an inside job. Oh, okay, yeah, with a lot of help from the place straight across from San Francisco. Um, but you had to have inside people. You had to have American citizens um, doing the algorithms and everything else. And there you go. Uh, that that's what I think is going on there. Uh, by the way, did you see that the Michigan Attorney General? I'll go ahead and try to get this in before the bottom of the hour. The Michigan Attorney General, <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, says uh, being wished a Merry Christmas devastated her son. Uh, Attorney General Dana Nessel of Michigan tweeted her concern over President Trump's use of Merry Christmas this weekend, according to CBN News. Um, and so, uh, according to Nestle, now, of course, this is her fault for not training her son to, you know, not be uh, offended by everything that walks by. Uh, Nestle later told her Twitter followers in response to Trump's speech, I remember the first time I was at a store with my son, and an employee said Merry Christmas to us. My son looked devastated and asked, are we the only people who don't celebrate Christmas? I answered, no, and we are just as American as everyone else. Glad Joe Biden knows that. Identity politics makes for very fragile, unhappy people. And it destroys 
everything that could hold a society together. That's what critical theory is all about. And we are seeing it. We are absolutely seeing it um, in the Michigan Attorney General, which tells you something about Michigan. But did you see the um, email from Saddleback Church? So Saddleback Church, as far as I know, has been in lockdown and has disappeared for since the start. They, they haven't met since March. Okay. <laughs> I won't repeat what's coming through the window from the other side. Cause, or if I do, just uh, address all complaints to Rich Pierce, not to Mir. <sighs> Saddleback Church, Friday, December 11th, 2020. If you say to a person in pain, now what translation is this? It's not pain. But anyways, if you say to a person in pain, God be with you, I hope you stay warm and get plenty to eat. But you do not give that person whatever they need. Your words are worth nothing. James 2.6. Dear Saddleback family, we don't want to be a church that just talks about love, that just studies love, that just defines love, that just prays about love. It's not enough to say we love people. We have to show love. I just sort of stop for a second and say, exactly how are you showing love to people in your church that have the desire and the and a conviction of conscience to, like, you know, partake of the Lord's Supper and observe baptism and be under the preaching of the Word. And they've already found other places, I guess. I can't wait to share with you my vision for next year, (laughs) which is interesting, and how we're going to continue loving and serving people who are in pain. But right now, before the year is over, we're starting with our black brothers and sisters. So if you are an African-American and or black member of Saddleback and spouses, no matter your ethnicity, isn't that sweet? So you don't have to be black, but you have to be married to a black person. You're invited to a special Zoom gathering Monday night, December 14th. This is last night, 6 p.m. with me. Pastor Anthony Miller, and Dr. Anita Phillips, racial trauma expert. I'd only heard of one other racial trauma expert before, and that was Kyle. Good old Kyle. But there's more than one. Racial trauma expert and host of the of In the Light podcast. Our worship team has also arranged a one-of-a-kind gospel experience. We want this to be a safe space for our black brothers and sisters to heal and be fed mentally, emotionally, and spiritually by their church family heading into the new year. But but it's not their church family. Their, their church family doesn't get to be a part of it. They're being segregated out of their church family to create a safe space. Click here to register and receive the link. For everyone else in our church family... I invite you to pray that God will use this night to begin the healing process that leads to true fellowship in our church family. Did you hear that? We'll begin. Think about this, folks. How many times had this church met before March of 2020? And there had been no beginning? All the times that this was read in the hearing of people, And no healing of racial trauma? 
you get the feeling this really isn't sufficient. That's right. That's right. In the woke church, it isn't. I invite you to pray that God will use this night to begin the healing process that leads to true fellowship in our church family, and that God will begin the minist- will begin the ministry of reconciliation in all of us as we head into new waters in the new year. I love you and miss you every day. And of course, it is signed by Pastor Rick of Saddleback Church. I- I've. I'm not not at all surprised that Rick Warren's gone this direction. I, in fact, given where he was going in years past, it's inevitable. There's not at all surprising that that Saddleback has gone full on woke. But this is happening in churches all across America, and when you see what's happening in the seminaries, formerly known as Reformed. This is where I have to, again, say, hey, (laughs) I blew it. I was wrong. I thought sola scriptura would be the barrier that would keep this kind of stuff out of truly Reformed churches. And those churches that are really focused upon that are the ones that are standing against it. So I wasn't completely wrong. But especially our um, educational institutions. There is such a danger in colleges and seminaries toward the wisdom of the world, toward not being seen as, as not walking in such a way as to be wise and insightful and you you want your place at the table and that opens the door to this woke theology this woke ideology this woke practice and it unfortunately seems to be almost everywhere it seems to be almost everywhere and that means it will continue to grow um in other places oh one other real quick one other thing i forgot to mention this i was going to mention this when i played the fauci thing but a um, uh, a European lawsuit has solidified the fact that the widely used PCR test for detecting the Wuhan coronavirus is up to 97% unreliable, so basically useless. So a Port- Portuguese judges reportedly upheld a lower court ruling that forcibly quarantining four German tourists after one tested, quote, positive for COVID-19 was unlawful. Why? Because the PCR test is inherently fraudulent. Well, um, okay. That's, uh, there's still people willing to listen to the facts somewhere. I'm not sure how fast they will be disappeared. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that, that'll, that'll go away. One last thing since we got just a couple minutes here. On... I've covered a bunch of stuff today. There is no way that I'm even going to be able to meaningfully write up a description of this program. Title, tags, nothing. I, I'm just going to have to say, we talked about a lot of things today. That's, that's, just, that's just the best I'm going to be able to do. A uh, whole, whole lot of stuff. Um, so Sam Smith 
I don't know who these people are. I'll be honest with you. Sam Smith has responded to Sean Mendez misgendering them earlier. Now, this is... Oh! The insanity. The insanity is so strong. Our language is being destroyed. When the, the, them, they, them is a plural pronoun. When people demand that you use that as a singular, they are so stinking arrogant. That level of arrogance I can understand from a two-year-old who demands that you use their made-up words, but adults aren't supposed to be like this. And so when someone demands that you use they, them, it creates this. Sam Smith has responded to Sean Mendez misgendering them earlier this week at iHeartRadio's Jingle Ball. That is not a correct sentence. Okay? It doesn't make any sense until you realize that they're playing with pronouns. So Sam Smith um, misgendered Sean Mendez by calling him him. Not them. That's not a group. So it comes after Smith announced in September last year that they identify as non-binary. The Dancing with a Stranger singer, never heard of him, uses they-them pronouns, which Smith has on their Instagram profile page. Oh, well, we all need to be looking at studying everybody's Instagram profile page before we meet them. What arrogance. I don't know. Um, so he introduced him as he. So, oh, Sam Smith, I'm so sorry for referring to you as a he for your jingle ball introduction, Mendez wrote on his Instagram stories on Friday, December 11th. It absolutely slipped my mind. Won't happen again. To which Mendez responded, we're all learning together. They wrote with two white heart emojis. No, he wrote. With two white heart emojis. Happy holidays, all my love, XX. I, 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 so much, absolutely so much for um, the English language. By the way, there was an excellent article. I, I'll, I'll try to remember to link to it. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if I will. Now I think about it. Uh, it was called, it was by Ben Six Smith, who evidently grew up charismatic but makes no religious claims. It was called The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me, is the subtitle. And this was a December 6th article um, that concluded, it was talking, of course, about what happened with Lentz. Lentz and Bieber and all the rest of this stuff. And here was the final uh, final paragraph. Let me just read this, and we'll close with this. This is a non-Christian. Maybe, maybe even an apostate. I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. 
Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. That, sadly, appears to have been true of Lentz and his celebrity acquaintances. Um, If I had a mic to drop, maybe that would be fitting, because that's, that's what that's all about. That's what the the creation of the brand and all that kind of stuff inside the church as a, as a part of being a pastor. Yeah. That was, uh, that was an interesting article. Um, Not long. Well worth, uh, well worth looking up. I think I caught back up with almost everything that I had thrown in there. That's, that was, yeah, there you go. There you go. Hopefully made it worthwhile for you to listen to the entirety of the program. Lots of important things to be thinking about. Christian application, important stuff. Thank you for being with us. Uh, We are going to, today's Tuesday, be back uh, tomorrow. Is that all right? Rich is giving me the, uh, I don't know. Um, Okay. Uh, But we're going to try to do something tomorrow and on Friday, if that's a... We have to do morning on Friday because I've got the... Um, I think so. We'll see. We'll we'll see. We'll try to do something tomorrow uh, and on Friday. Uh, reason we're not doing Thursday is I I turn fifty eight on Thursday and I am going to be attempting to climb five thousand eight hundred feet fifty eight. That's my standard birthday climb in one hundred twenty five miles. <laughs> so I'll be a little tired after that. I don't know what's going to happen after 60, but anyways, we'll see you next time. God bless.